Welcome to Midcast. I'm your host, Minar Adli. This is an interview series featuring dissenting voices the mainstream media would rather silence. Today, I'm joined by independent journalist, writer, and researcher Vanessa Beely, who's based in Damascus, Syria. She's been covering the conflict in Syria for many independent media outlets, including Mint Press News. And today, she's here to join me to discuss the recent escalation between Washington and, and Syria. Um, recently, uh, the Joe Biden administration, within its first three months within office, uh, dropped 1.75 tons of bombs on a town on the border of Syria and Iraq, killing 22 people amid a global pandemic when the majority of Americans are still waiting on their stimulus checks. So we're here to discuss this with Vanessa. She's on the ground. Thank you, Vanessa, for joining us today. Hi, it's really good to be back on. <laughs> it's good to see you. Um, yeah. Tell us tell us about the latest escalation between the United States and Syria in the last couple of weeks. Well, I mean, basically, this started as far back as um, New Year's Eve when we saw an uptick in ISIS attacks on Syrian Arab army positions, on um, arterial roads, on uh, uh, oil depots, fuel depots, etc., just leading up to Joe Biden's inauguration. And then, of course, 36 days into Biden's inauguration, after his inauguration, um, we saw the uh, violation of international law and the bombing of Syrian territory right on the border, as you said, um, with Iraq in an area called Al-Bukamal. Al-Bukamal is a, a major trade crossing, let's say, between Iraq and Syria, and it's one of the few crossings that is not under control of Turkey or of the US or of the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces or the um, Kurdish separatists. And so, therefore, you know, this was a clear message from uh, Joe Biden to the Syrian administration in Damascus and um, to its allies inside Syria that it was not going to allow the continuation of trade across this border. It was going to shut down every aspect of trade for uh, the Syrian government on the basis, of course, on the pretext of uh, self-defense. Uh, on the basis of an attack previously um, uh, on one of the American occupation bases inside Iraq, but 500 kilometers away from where Biden actually launched his missiles and killed, um, this is an important point to make, uh, one of the members of the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Forces, um, that are described as an Iranian militia, but of course, actually, they are um, a, a militia that was established to fight ISIS. Of course, America is claiming to fight ISIS inside Syria and Iraq. Uh, and the PMU uh, comprises uh, all the minority communities from inside Iraq. So although it receives some help from Iran, it effectively works very closely with the uh, Iraqi government. Uh, with the Iraqi army, it, you know, it's very much it has a similar role to to Hezbollah in that it's integrated into Iraqi society, and it has been responsible for the defeat of ISIS in many of the battles in Iraq. And so, talking about this this pretext that was used, you mentioned that um, you know we heard it all over the news, right? It was uh, the United States targeting Iranian-backed militias. I mean, we hear this often 
so much in the coverage of Syria. It's like, why is the United States in Syria targeting Iranian militias? Can you explain that to us? <laughs> no, it's extraordinary. I mean, uh, it's also, I mean, what was extraordinary is immediately after this attack, how all the mainstream media basically ran with the Pentagon tagline, which was that this was in retaliation for the attack, which, by the way, has not been claimed by any of the Iranian militia. Um, so in my view, there is a very strong chance that these are Israeli uh, false flags designed to enable the Biden administration to carry out this unlawful aggression against Syria mm -hmm. on the basis that it's attacking Iranian militia that is attacking U.S. bases. U.S. bases, of course, that Iraqi parliament has voted to leave, uh, to vacate Iraq. So very rapidly, of course, Biden's troops inside Iraq are becoming uh, vulnerable um, assets rather than, um, as he describes them, uh, you know, uh, defensive um, troops inside Iraq. Um, the anti-Iran um, tagline is part of the uh, upping, the ramping up of aggression again, or, or rather the threat of aggression against Iran. And of course, this is being led um, by Israel. Israel is furious that Biden is returning to the nuclear deal that Obama established and Trump um, basically backed out of, which was to the huge pleasure of Israel. So, of course, we're going to see now Israel putting pressure on Biden to effectively um, turn back on the aggression against Iran. Um, that's why I think there's a very strong possibility that Israel is orchestrating the attacks on the U.S. bases um, in order to prevent Biden coming to the table um, to talk with Iran. It's also an indication of Biden's weakness. You know, the fact that he's caved into the neoconservative influences inside um, Washington at his first, you know, within 40 days of, of his presidency, basically. So it's a clear indication to Iran that Biden is, is a weak negotiating partner, that he's going to be pressured both by Israel and by the neoconservative elements inside his own administration and bipartisan neoconservative elements, right? You know, I, these days I see so little difference between uh, Republican, yeah. Democrat. You know, we've just seen the continuation of the roadmap that was established under kind of Clinton, Bush, Obama carried on. Uh, through Trump, Trump was very much the economic battering ram inside Syria, um, effectively to to surround Syria on all sides and to bring its knees to its knees economically before Biden came in, and is effectively increasing the U.S. military footprint in Syria. And talking about this roadmap, this plan uh, that the United States and the neocons and the neoliberals, whether Republican or Democrat, have for Syria. Um, I know that things change a little bit during the Trump administration, but where do you see that plan headed towards under the Biden administration? Well, I kind of have a theory about the Trump administration. If we go back to when Trump was elected, mm -hmm. um, it was just after Russia actually intervened and the military tide started to turn in favor of the Syrian government and its allies. So my, you know, I, I tend to also see that all U.S. elections, as they are in the U.K., are pretty much orchestrated and that the results are known uh, very much in advance. 
And I think at that point, they realized that were Clinton to come in, uh, she wouldn't have a clear uh, military view, right? Because, it, you know, Russia had taken everyone by surprise by intervening in the way it did. And I think at that point, it was allowed for Trump to come in because Trump, as I said, effectively, although people always say he didn't start any wars, but actually in Syria, he probably caused <laughs> greater damage than the Obama administration, strange though that may seem. But economically, and not only economically, I mean, he ramped up the, the, the sadistic economic sanctions that only ever target the people of any prey nation. They right. never target what the US administration is telling you they're targeting. You know, the same in Iraq, the same in Yemen, the same uh, in Syria, in Venezuela, in Russia, in Iran, et cetera. Well, the claim is, like you said, it's, it's a nonviolent approach when really yeah. it's, it's extremely sadistic. and very. It actually yeah. kills more people, yes. I believe, than a military war. You know, I mean, there are yeah. the hundreds of thousands of children that died in Iraq. I mean, that, and, and they dare to call that non-lethal. You know, I mean, it's it's one of the cruelest forms of uh, collective punishment for a people of a nation that is being targeted by the U.S. It's very difficult to describe um, the effects of sanctions. I mean, I'm living here. I'm seeing them on a daily basis. And under Trump, um, the sanctions uh, with the Caesar law, uh, which was brought in in 2019, I lose track a bit, um, of course, doubled down on uh, the devastation uh, of the previous sanctions. Sanctions here, of course, have been in effect since around 1979. And it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons that sanctions were imposed, I think, in um, the, the early 2000s um, was because the US claimed that Assad was harboring the PKK, which then, of course, was known as a terrorist organization. Now it's known as the SDF, and it's uh, are we a are US we arming ally. those guys? Are we arming yeah, them? Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, are we, we arming are. them now? <laughs> yeah, you're arming them, and you're giving them Syrian territory. You know, I mean, this is it, it's an ongoing pattern, right? We see it time and time again yes. when the U.S.'s enemy becomes its best friend when it serves a purpose, right? And and that's exactly what's happening now. Um, and so under Trump, we saw this increase of, of economic pressure, doubling down on the multi-spectrum war. We also saw the burning of crops, which I wrote about for uh, Mint Press. Sorry, one second. Okay. <laughs> um, and um, the burning of crops, the, the stealing of the oil, the occupation of the oil fields, which is not uh, because America needs the oil. It's basically to prevent the Syrian people from having the oil. And to provide revenue um, for for their proxies, in this case, both ISIS and uh, the SDF. <laughs> One second. Oh, that's okay, Vanessa. <laughs> I apologize. Um, and so then, uh, you know, we move on to Biden, and then we're almost back to what I call the Obama-Clinton right. roadmap which right. is the, the toppling of the Syrian government, the uh, cutting back of Iranian influence. I mean, this is the terrifying thing for Israel. It, it threatens its uh, supremacy and its security uh, in the region. Because were, for example, Iran to achieve um, uh, road access through Iraq, through Syria, and down to Palestine, 
Of course, this is the greatest fear for Israel, that Iran achieves um, this kind of uh, access to its borders. Right. You know, we've seen throughout the 10 year war, uh, these kind of negotiations going on that Iran has to pull back from the border with the actual occupied territories, territories of Syria in the Golan territories that Israel is um, occupying and annexing. Um, and so um, what I see as this talk of aggression against and of course, in the Israeli language, it's always preemptive, self-defensive aggression right, right. i mean we hear this time and time again oh we're going to be aggressive to prevent them being aggressive against us right, right. I, I mean you know we we have it all the time they are constantly in, and in fact the israeli attacks have um increased since uh, biden was elected the israeli attacks on syrian territory have increased and again uh, the, the, the pretext is always we're attacking Iranian militia. I mean, you know, this is complete violation of international law. The Iranian militia as such, or the official Iranian military, are here at the invitation of the Syrian government, the internationally recognized Syrian government that is defending itself against a huge number of hostile states that are invading its country with various proxy extremist groups that Israel is supporting with arms, with uh, finances, with hospital treatment, medical treatment, etc. So we're back on the roadmap of subjugating Syria, of driving out, uh, as they perceive it, the Iranian influence and expansionism, mm -hmm. um, and toppling the Syrian government. Of course, now the Biden administration is kind of quoting it in this honeyed language. They're saying... Well, yeah, you know, we'll consider lifting the sanctions, but only if you effectively surrender completely, you know, and release all the Islamist prisoners. I mean, there's, there, there was a paper written very early on in the Biden administration, and actually Peter Ford, former UK ambassador to Syria, um, has commented uh, very acerbically about this. And he's basically said what this is effectively is a demand for the Syrian government to surrender, and then they will lift the sanctions, which again demonstrates exactly what sanctions are designed to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you talk about, um, you know, you talked about a lot of things, but I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That was a really great explanation of the conflict in Syria um, but I think it's really important that you highlight Israel's role in the conflict because whenever we're, you know, consuming mainstream media news or even some independent media outlets, they don't totally cover Israel's role in the conflict. And the truth is, just the way you described it, is that the war in Syria benefits really Israel. <laughs> At the end of the day, Israel is the main beneficiary of this war in Syria. And um, talk to me about the latest attacks on Syrian soil by Israel. You mentioned a couple that were that happened mm. recently. Yeah, um, I mean, actually, again, since New Year's Eve, um, we've seen a number of Israeli attacks. And the one that was towards the end of February that I actually went and visited the area that came under attack, which was in <clears throat> uh, northern, no, sorry, uh, to the west of Hamar City. Um, to the northwest of Damascus, just so people uh, realize where it is. And there are actually a family of um, nine. Uh, their house was hit by one of the Israeli missiles. 
five members of the family were killed and four were grievously injured. The house itself was destroyed and a number of neighbors were badly injured in the attack and their um, shops, their houses were destroyed. This was a very uh, tightly packed suburb of Hamas. I mean, any rocket that hit there would have done terrible damage. And of course, none of this was even mentioned in Western media. I mean, I think the loss of life was just about touched on after a few days um, when, you know, the Syrian media had uh, reported on it. Um, but of course, there is never any condemnation of Israel for carrying out, except by Russia. Um, there is never any uh, international condemnation of the Israeli attacks because Israel always puts it under the pretext that we are under threat from the Iranian militia inside Syria and therefore we have the right to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, where have we heard that before? But I think coming back to your point about um, this war benefits Israel. And yes, of course it does. I mean, even the uh, U.S. occupation of the territory to the east of the Euphrates. Of course, this was part of the original Yinon plan for Israel to take the territory um, to the east of the Euphrates, right? Um, and so, therefore, we have to see that the SDF, um, the Kurdish separatists, are being used as a, a settler instrument for both the U.S. Uh, and for Israel. Israel supports the Kurdish separatists, right? I mean, right. it's it's... Clearly, it supported them already in Iraq, but it also supports them in Syria. And of course, what we're seeing very much is a repeat of what happened in Iraq, in the sense that the Kurds are being used to occupy the oil-rich regions. It is then being suggested that that area is partitioned and becomes autonomous. And of course, then it will be supported by the US and by Israel. It will be free from sanctions. This is another really important point to make about sanctions. While the sanctions apply to the Syrian people living under the protection of the Syrian state, it doesn't apply to U.S. proxies, right? And that includes Al-Qaeda and all manner of affiliates. It applies well, they're not, to ISIS. So they're not it, sanctioned. They're no. not sanctioned. Oh, no. They're, they're given every single benefit, aid, equipment, uh, medical aid, food, revenue that they need. Right. I mean, to give you an indication, the SDF are occupying the oil fields. They're receiving uh, the majority of the revenue from that, but they also receive revenue from stolen wheat and barley, uh, cotton, agricultural equipment, agricultural feedstuff. So all of this is depriving the Syrian people while giving revenue to the SDF. But swap over from the northeast to the northwest, and then the, the oil... Uh, what do you call it, processing, is being done by Al-Qaeda. They've actually established uh, a petroleum company called Watad. There are actually now two competing for the monopoly uh, with each other, but both affiliated to Al-Qaeda. I'm so sophisticated. And yeah, it is. They have <laughs> cryptocurrencies. Seriously. I mean, they have Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We just have oh inflation. Seriously. I mean, you know, people don't realize that the actual insanity of this entire construct you know and how it's being narrated to you by the right, u.s right. And um, I was, yeah, yeah i was i was actually yeah. going to ask you next what is happening to syria's oil right now <laughs> <What>? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <we> go there? <laughs> yeah um you know so basically 
the oil that's being stolen in the Northeast by the US proxy, the Kurdish separatists, is then being processed by Al-Qaeda in the Northwest and is bringing them in a huge amount of revenue when they resell that to, to Turkey, right? And in the same and way... Insanity. But, <laughs> if I want a piece of that pie, I just have to go through Bitcoin, right? I get my Bitcoin wallet ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the US itself is... Um, I mean, I think it was just yesterday that I saw that the U.S. itself was using its military trucks to steal uh, wheat and grain and to take it uh, away from Syria and down towards uh, the Al-Tanif uh, base, American occupation base on the border with Jordan and Iraq. So all the time there are convoys, American convoys, taking oil, taking wheat, taking grain out of Syria in order to effectively bring the state to its knees. You know, it hasn't succeeded in defeating Syria militarily. So now, of course, we're seeing a very familiar pattern. Now it will use the multi-spectrum tactics. It will use, uh, for example, now um, the US is doubling the ISIS camp in the Northeast, funding by the UK. Of course, one of the main partners in the U.S. coalition in the destruction of Syria. So now they've decided they're going to increase, expand the ISIS camp, holding camp in uh, Hasaka in the northeast. Um, that will mean that they will have 10,000 more or less ISIS uh, terrorists under their control in a camp which will be guarded by the SDF. Of course, the SDF uh, benefit from this because they take bribes from ISIS. So there's a whole kind of mafia operation going on at this level also, which provides revenue. We know already that the US is training and recruiting and arming and equipping ISIS in Al-Tanaf. So the fact that they're establishing and expanding the ISIS camp in the Northeast to 10,000 terrorists, We know that they have been ferrying those terrorists from uh, the various U.S. camps around Hasekar into the desert, uh, close to Deir Zul. From there, those terrorists are carrying out attacks against the Syrian Arab army. We know that Americans have been ferrying ISIS into Iraq to retrain them, re-equip them, to um, turn them into a kind of super ISIS and then bring them back into Syria. So the increase in the camp is clearly a way of blackmailing Russia and uh, Damascus. It's a way of uh, threatening them because clearly at any moment there can be a breakout from the camp. (laughs) And we know that the U.S. is ferrying those terrorists around anyway to carry out isolated attacks. For example, in the last few days, we've had new ISIS attacks um, to the east of Salamia. Now, that area had been completely cleaned of ISIS terrorists. Now they're back. Where have they come from? You know, they haven't just suddenly organically appeared out of nowhere. How many, you know, years ago was it that Trump was claiming they'd completely defeated ISIS? You know, ISIS is just the boogeyman. Absolutely. ISIS is, it's just the reason for the U.S. to be here, just as Al-Qaeda was in various well, other places. Exactly. And we've, we've covered this in the past, you know, for yeah. years, for pretty much a decade. The war on terror is basically <laughs> yeah. just fueling more terrorism. It's not yeah. actually to fight terrorism. It's, it's just it uses an excuse to get into Well, let's terrorism. see. Yeah, let's see how much terror has grown exponentially since right. the war on terror began. <laughs> 
It has grown a lot, absolutely. You know, we've yeah. covered it in like every country from Yemen to Iraq to Sudan to Somalia. I mean, you know, these well, actually, uh, extended. in Yemen, yes. uh, there we heard in the last two days that Turkey now is involving itself in the war against Yemen, and it is uh, threatening to take terrorists from uh, inside Syria and to transfer. Of course, this was already happening, actually. ISIS terrorists were getting taken from uh, Syria to Yemen even before, even I think maybe under Obama uh, that started. But now Turkey is talking about sending its Al-Qaeda affiliates from Syria, as it has done in Libya, of course, Mm -hmm. and in Azerbaijan, and sending them to, to Yemen. And actually coming back to that, while Israel is probably one of the biggest threats, Turkey is also under Erdogan. Because yes. under Erdogan, you have a very similar expansionist uh, lunatic in charge of the government with neo-Ottoman uh, pretensions. And uh, I think it was Kivok Almasian who, who did a really good um, episode recently. And, and he made a lot of sense. He said the difference between Israel and Turkey is Israel occupies by force, which can never stand the test of time because there will always be pushback. But Turkey is cleverer. Turkey uses its Muslim Brotherhood um, roots, if you like, to uh, occupy through um, uh, yeah, incentivization, basically. I mean, that's why in, in Idlib, they have cryptocurrency, they have electricity 24-7, they have Bitcoin, they have, I mean, literally, it's a thriving industry in Idlib mm-hmm. because Turkey is making it possible to exist, right? And so that's how Turkey works. And it's, it's a much more actually insidious way of occupying and annexing territory because actually the people in that territory, predominantly Muslim Brotherhood, extremists, uh, whether they are Syrian or foreigners, um, believe that life is better under Turkish rule. You can see right. that in the demonstrations in Idlib, you know, calling for Turkey to come in, calling for Turkey to occupy them. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge difference between Turkey and Israel. And in some ways, that makes Turkey as big a threat, if not a greater threat than Israel in some ways. Well, and now Syria is, I, from what I understand, is in the rebuilding stage in many places across Syria. Yeah. You, you've, you know, we've talked about this before. And based on everything you just described and explained, is that still the case? Yeah, it is. I mean, actually, you know, Syria is an extraordinary country. I mean, you know this from Palestine, and uh, we see it in Yemen. We see it actually in all these countries that are part of the resistance bloc that have uh, for years suffered under sanctions, under the threat of military campaigns against them on some spurious pretext, whether it's weapons of mass destruction or the chemical attacks in Syria or the Benghazi rape stories or the incubator babies, I can go on and on. Um, But basically all these countries have the kind of sword of Damocles over their head all the time. They live with it. And they are extraordinarily resourceful. I mean, take, for example, the air defense here. The Syrian air defense is archaic, but there are Syrian engineers who work all week and then at weekends they go and modify the air defense to make it more effective. And this is very much what has enabled Syria to survive. It's, it's the fabric of this society, the determination to maintain 
um, its secular way of life and to not be subsumed by some kind of um, Islamist, extremist, backward thinking, uh, ruling force, which of course will be backed by all of the predator nations that are circling around it. You know, and um, the rebuilding is is still going on, but it's very much a trickle process because, of course, under the Caesar sanctions, it's virtually impossible for, for, for example, the medical sector. I had a meeting with the deputy minister of health last week. They can't get equipment. You know, much of their many of their cancer wards are no longer functioning properly because they can't get replacement equipment for machinery, which is already old. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, the rebuilding and restoration is going on, but it's going on very, very slowly. Right. I, I suppose sanctions would affect that so yeah. much based on what yeah. you're telling me. Yeah, totally. And talk to me about, I, I want to wrap up here very soon, but mm-hmm. I, I want to know about the countries that are helping Syria. I know that Venezuela has stepped in, Iran has yeah. stepped in rebuilding Syria. I mean, what is what is the dynamics here in looking for those who are actually in support of Syria rebuilding and being a, and continuing to be a sovereign nation? Well, actually, I mean, there are a number of countries like Czechoslovakia, for example, and okay. uh, South Africa, who never left their yeah. embassies here, you know, and, and they stayed throughout the war. And actually, they've been quietly very supportive from um, various trade uh, perspectives, etc., um, South Africa, for example, now uh, the ambassador here is uh, working very hard to, to, to persuade people in South Africa that it's safe to invest in Syria, etc., and to try and build those trade bridges. Um, Iran, of course, is doing whatever it can with providing oil, um, the same from uh, Russia, you know, what Russia has done uh, on a humanitarian basis, on a military basis, is is extraordinary. I'm not saying that Russia is not benefiting from this, of course. I mean, under Putin now, uh, Russia has achieved what the Soviet Union never achieved, which is, uh, to a degree, um, almost supremacy in the Middle East. You know, I mean, Russia now has become the pivotal power here, more so than America. Um, And, you know, that's a big achievement for Russia. So let's not rule out the the fact that they are receiving benefits from from what is going on inside Syria, as is everyone. And that is one of the big complexities and one of the big problems here also. Um, China is is another one who's obviously helped through, through vetoes at the UN, the same as Russia. Um, And that's another point. Russia has been probably the strongest ally at the UN and a very important ally for Syria at the UN, pushing back against the chemical weapon claims, etc. And um, who have I covered? Hezbollah, of course, um, who, again, have committed themselves to the military campaign here without any real benefit for Hezbollah, other than, of course, uh, the security of Syria on the border with Lebanon um, and the protection of an ally of Palestine. Um, So all these countries are doing what they can, but of course they are all also under sanctions themselves. And they are trying to, for example, to create uh, economic uh, circumnavigation of the sanctions through uh, creating currencies, through creating... um, 
economic uh, trade lines, et cetera, that can circumnavigate the, the dollar and try and avoid um, the sanctions. But it's, it's tough. Absolutely. I mean, to rebuild a country that has been ravaged and attacked mm -hmm. from every corner of the world is going to take some time. I mean, if just look at Gaza. <laughs> This yeah. tiny strip of land has yeah. been completely just brought down to rubble rubble and you know how much how much time is that going to take to rebuild or countries like sudan or yemen it's just going to take mm. so much time and effort um but vanessa i you know i appreciate you being here with us today i always learned so much from you and i really appreciate you being on the ground in syria to share uh these facts with you know our audiences because uh, our mainstream corporate media has failed us so miserably on really educating the public about what truly is happening in Syria. And of course, we know why. It's because we're, they're promoting <laughs> the war. Yeah. Um, so thank you for joining Mintcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back on. And anytime you want to talk through events here, I think they're going to be moving forward pretty rapidly now. Absolutely. Well, we will definitely have you on again. So thank you so much. And we'll hopefully see you very soon. Thank you. Thank you.